0: I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Genesis, chapter 37. We're going to take a bit of a pivot tonight. If you're here and used to us being in the Luke series and you were unaware, we are pivoting away from that for just a bit. We're going to be involved in a series tonight called Trauma, Trouble, and Triumph, the story of Joseph, a prescription for dealing with deep pain. It's been said that if you speak to hurting people, you'll never lack for an audience. Uh, That pain is something that all of us deal with at some point. And I'll kind of go out on a ledge here and say that for a lot of us in here, more than likely, the last couple years with COVID, political instability, social instability, economic instability, and the way that that pushes on all of our relationships and otherwise, I'd be willing to bet that in 2022, there might be a higher, you know, percentage of people who either are dealing or have dealt with or show the scars of dealing with deep pain. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that the call of Scripture and the hope of a relationship with Christ is not that all of us pretend that nothing hard ever happens in our life for the rest of our time here. I remember when I was young seeing an old movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers, an old black and white film. Any of y'all ever seen that before? remember having to watch that in a film history class if you were alive during that time. It was a film about uh, this group of people in a small town, fairly happy little town, but all of a sudden these strange plant pods started showing up and all of a sudden the people started changing. Their personalities started changing. It wasn't that they became cruel and it wasn't that they became mean. It wasn't that they became violent, but one by one they all changed to emotionless robots just bit by bit and you follow the movement of these two characters who figure out what's going on that these body snatchers have come down and they're replacing the true personalities with people and in the movie they start to say things like oh but you want to come to our side because you'll be free from emotion and you'll be free from from love and pain and all these kind of things that set yourself you know at at dis-ease you don't want without being at ease you, you want to get away from all of that. And the man and his wife began to run, and they're trying to get away because they don't want to lose the experience of being people with emotions and, uh, and, and being real. You walk into some church environments, and sometimes if you're not careful or maybe you're not reading the room real well, you can feel like, well, if I'm going to have to be here, I'm going to have to act as if my body got snatched. Now, none of us want to be Eeyores, right? We don't want to walk around saying, Well, thanks for noticing, but let me tell you about all my problems. That's not what we're called to be. But there's little hope in the gospel for a group of people who feel like following Jesus means that I must act as if nothing difficult ever happens in my life, I must act as if I never walk through real pain. And there's a way in which the enemy likes to fool us into thinking that if you truly love Jesus and you truly followed Him the way that you should, you shouldn't have to deal with anything hard, your emotions should never weigh you down, you shouldn't deal with darkness on the inside that forces you just into tough things, this great sadness that can settle on or, or whatever it might be. And the reality is that as Christians, we don't have to try to turn off our emotions, But instead, because of Christ, we can lean into even the tough times because He is enough to walk us through that. And so the story of Joseph is a story that is a majestic picture of someone dealing with pain in a way, at least for me, that's higher than I could ever do. Joseph's example is far surpasses anything that that I think I could ever live up to uh, in Scripture. He faces so much pain. So much trauma. We're going to begin his series, uh, this series tonight with his story and uh, dive into that in Genesis 37. Now, uh, tonight's session is called Pain Begets Pain. And if you've ever heard a title that makes you think, oh, goodness gracious, how are we going to get through the next 30 minutes with a title like that, Pain Begets Pain, As we open up the story with a point of difficulty, it's important to say a couple things first. I've got handouts for you tonight. I think hopefully you got a chance to grab one, and I know there were some folks passing them out. Thank you for that. But I do have a few fill-in-the-blanks. If you're filling in the blanks tonight, let's go ahead and start off with the first one. The book of Genesis begins with perfection, and it ends with a coffin, The book of Genesis begins with perfection and it ends with a coffin. Genesis chapter 50, 50, (laughs) 50, verse 26, the last verse in the book of Genesis says this, So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As you read the opening chapters of the book of Genesis... You see a perspective of the entire universe being set in motion, where there was once only darkness and nothing, that now there is light and there is a world with land and plants and trees and animals and then human beings. They live in a perfect environment and they're living in perfect fellowship with God Himself. That they are naked and unashamed, that there is no shame, no guilt, no pain in existence in creation. And then, of course, Genesis chapter 3 happens and the spiral continues. As sin enters into the world, it's not only a little bit of pain that comes in, but before long there's death and there's murder and there's strife and there's difficulty and there's struggle and on and on and on in the chapters of Scripture. You see, until you come to the very last verse, and we've reduced all the way down to the ending of the book, has a subject or a direct object, I guess, if you're going to be real fancy, of a coffin. Joseph's life... Being done, and what was once a deathless, sinless, painless existence has come so far. And we find ourselves finding a lot in common with Joseph's day, even with so much he would marvel at with our technology and different things like that. We haven't escaped death, we haven't escaped pain, other than the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. And so we come to the passage tonight recognizing that the book of Genesis itself is a testimony of the fact that not only in Joseph's life, but in all of our lives, there's pain, there's difficulty. But we also would be wrong to not... Mention right off the bat, as a point of hope, every week the thesis statement for Joseph's life. And that actually occurs just a few verses before the verse that is on your screen now, and that's in chapter 50, verse 20. And many of you know it. It says this As for you, Joseph speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The thesis of Joseph's life, Genesis 50-20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Aren't you thankful that God can undo what anyone else does or even we ourselves do? that brings pain and hurt. And we look around and we say, Lord, I don't know that you're big enough. I don't know that you're great enough. I don't know that you can conquer either the mistake I made or the difficulty that I'm walking through, the pain that I face. No, the reality is, even as the book of Romans testifies later on, God works together all things for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so God is constantly weaving good things out of our brokenness our difficulty, our pain. Now, sometimes the time that we will know that will be in eternity. And on this side of heaven, we may never see how God has woven and brought some of those things together, but we will someday stand before him and declare the same reality to say, Jesus has done all things well. That the reason all of our tears will be wiped away, and not only then, but that we'll never need another tear for the rest of eternity, is we will be able to see, even in the parts that are difficult, that God has worked in ways that are more mighty than we could ever dream or think. And so we would be wrong to focus on what we'd focus on tonight without first saying, don't lose heart, Because even in pain, God is working for good and He means things for good even when our own mistakes or the difficulty that others or our circumstances place on us seem to be insurmountable and seem to be very difficult. And so Genesis 37, uh, we come to the story of a man named Joseph or a boy named Joseph rather and, uh, and we get to his circumstances. Now, I thought it was so incredible that, um, now number one, at the, uh, the Joy Time Retreat, I heard Dr. Joy Green did an outstanding job on the life of Joseph. So if you got a chance to go to that event, you're probably going to get to go to her Sunday and tell you, you ought to be up there on Wednesday night, Joy. You, you really had this thing better. She, she did a marvelous job from what I heard. I was at uh, Park Place yesterday with our kids club, and the story that we had come to, Rebecca Carter was sharing with the kids about the life of Joseph. and. So So we just keep walking through. So I think the Lord's uh, at very least telling me something about that story right now. Uh, But for all of us, perhaps that's an important thing for us to get to focus on. We come to Joseph's story and he's in the middle of a larger story that's being played out. Uh, He is the son of Jacob and it's an interesting situation for what exactly is is going on in his life and, and, uh, and whatnot. The first point that I've got here tonight is that pain is rarely isolated. It's usually rippling before and after us. Pain is rarely isolated. It is usually rippling before and after us. Years ago, I got a chance to, to lead a, a life group or a Sunday school class that was made up mostly of people who either had never been in church or were in church for not, after not being in church for a long time. A lot of them had never really read some of the less well-known passages in the Bible. We started going through the later chapters of Genesis and looking at Abraham and Sarah, and then Sarah, when she didn't believe that God was going to keep His promise, you know, brought in another lady as a concubine so that Ishmael could be born, and then that turned into a mess. And then all of a sudden, later on, you've got Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah are picking who they like the best, who they love the best between Jacob and Esau, and that goes south really quick. Jacob flees for his life before long. He's got a spouse, but he's not happy with that spouse, so he needs another spouse. And then these two spouses start competing against each other for who can have the most kids and who can be the best wife. And they start bringing other women into it as well. And it's a mess. And I remember the looks on some of these people's faces when they were looking at and they were turning the front cover of their Bible over looking, yeah, I'm still reading the Bible right now. <laughs> I think, what a mess. I mean, it was, you could have seen it on any daytime, you know, talk show of just crazy circumstances. You could have seen what was playing out in, in Jacob's life and in the life of all of these Um, and so we come to that story. We we would love to think that all of us get to start at square one or wherever we start dealing with pain, that's square one, but in reality, we're sort of stuck in the middle of a lot of other ripples in the stream, aren't we? And what decisions we make impact other people. They don't just impact us. Decisions that other uh, other people make impact us, whether it's parents, grandparents, friends, neighbors, schoolmates, whatever it is, There's sometimes other people's choices, other people's decisions that impact us in a a difficult way. Joseph finds himself in that circumstance. Let me see if I can get to this graphic here today. This is the family tree sort of in, in some part to get us here. Jacob, you can see, is Joseph's father. Just in case you're new to this or maybe just need a refresher, here are the four ladies, Leah and Rachel being the technical wives, and then Bilhah and Zilpah being the concubines, and then all of these kids, these 12 sons, and we know of at least one daughter named Dinah who's not listed here. And imagine the rivalry. Imagine the hurt and the pain. Imagine what it's like for Reuben, the firstborn by Leah, the firstborn of all of these, to watch his mother give birth to child after child and to say, now my husband will love me each time a child is born, but to feel in her own heart that that still hasn't been accomplished after the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. You've got the rivalry with Rachel, Rachel and how Joseph is going to be loved more than any of the others, and then Benjamin in like fashion will be lifted above. And so all these… all these kids that grow into men who are trying to figure out what all that means, and it's all just ripples in the water that are getting in the way of everything else. You know, our pain is rarely isolated. Joseph's brothers don't truly hate Joseph. They're dealing with all the pain of this, and the one who's going to have a target on his back is Joseph. You ever been in a situation where it really wasn't you that somebody should have been mad at? You were just the person in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you were the one where the aim was going to get focused because it couldn't get focused anywhere else. Sometimes we get put in situations, and the ones that are most difficult are when you're saying, I don't know why in the world I'm facing the pain that I'm facing. I don't feel like I deserve this. I don't feel like I've earned this. I don't understand where it's coming from. You know, those kind of things. Joseph is in a situation where he's going to be dealing with that. Let's, let's read some verses here. Genesis 37, I'm going to start with verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They hated Joseph because of what love he got from their father, the love that they didn't seem to get in the same way from their father. If we're not carefully reading, we can look quickly and say, well, of course, he's a kid who's telling on his brothers, and so they hated him for that. But no, it goes a lot deeper than that. Can you imagine if it was so obvious that your parents loved your siblings more than they loved you, if it was so obvious that it got written down in the Bible, just how obvious that would be? This isn't a judgment call, it isn't a whim. I know some of you who are siblings out here, you joke around with your siblings, well, you know mom loves you best. Well, you know that they're gonna be easier on you than they're gonna be easier on me. Some of y'all have those conversations. But imagine if it was so true and so real that it was written down in the word of God for all time. Because Jacob had learned this practice from his parents and the ripples continued and continued. Sometimes the pain that we walk through has a lot of connecting points for how it got there. And these brothers aren't truly mad at Joseph, Joseph just becomes the target for them uh, where they are. And so number two is a lot like this, as we dive into the passage we'll see this more and more, not dealing with pain often leads us to transfer it to the innocent. Not dealing with pain often leads us to transfer it to the innocent. You ever found yourself in the reality that the person you treat the worst, if you're not careful, is the person that you love the most? That for all those people at work that you put on a smile around, or all those people in your neighborhood that you just feel good about, you you use so much energy to be nice to them, you come home to your spouse and it's just, oh, 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 if we're not careful. We can treat the people we love the most like a doormat. If we're not careful, we can make those who are innocent, those who are not part of it, we'd somehow deal with the hurt and deal with the pain by transferring it to someone else. That's how Joseph's brothers are dealing with their anger towards their father. Can't take it out on him. This is a culture where you got to go with whatever your dad says. So we're going to target Joseph. That's what they began to do. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now let's skip ahead to verse 12. Many of you know the passage about Joseph's dreams and how they would be fulfilled. We're not going to spend time on that tonight, but we'll come to the situation where Joseph's life is changed forever, beginning in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are you not your brothers… Excuse me, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And so he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that, we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites.'" And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. You know what's so amazing when we come to this passage, even as sort of a point of detail before we circle back here, you catch who Joseph is sold to? The Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites. It's about 160 years between when Ishmael was born or the beginning points of this passage to when Joseph's born. Uh, a lot of, you know, you can see Joseph lives to be 110, Jacob will live to be 130. Some of those lifespans are coming down, so you've got big space sometimes between generations. But for 160 years, Ishmael's descendants have grown. And so it's Joseph's distant relations that he's sold to. And the ripple of what happened here, 160 years later. Further back than for us, the American Civil War is having an impact directly on Joseph's life. And so you've got Reuben, who's trying to keep his brother from being being killed. You've got Judah, who perhaps is also trying to save his brother's life, but make a little bit of money as well. We're not sure exactly his intentions, but a situation that's just really tough. The third thing that I mentioned here tonight, some people get caught up in bad situations and the best they can do is to partially help. Some people get caught up in bad situations and the best they can do is to partially help. Have you ever been in Reuben's spot before? That you can't rescue somebody, you can't make the situation perfect, but what you can do is try to move it in the right direction just a bit. Some of you in here might still deal with, if I only could have done more. If I only could have done this instead of that, if I only would have had the strength to do this instead of that, and sometimes in our life we get put in a situation where the best we can be in a moment is a Reuben. Try to advocate for someone, but we don't have quite the power or the position or whatever it might be to to do all that we wish we could. Some people get caught up in bad situations. The best they can do is to partially help. Imagine what it was like for… Number one for Joseph… Now, we don't know a lot about his circumstances, but I'd be willing to bet the most prized possession he had was that coat, coat of many colors. Imagine what it was like as it was torn off of him, and he would never see it again. My youngest son is almost five years old, but he has a gray elephant that he sleeps with every night. It's one of these little half-blanket, half-stuffed animal kind of deals. We have learned what it's like when that gets lost and we try to have a bedtime. We got smart, now we have the gray elephant that he has, and we have two backup gray elephants at the top of our closet in our bedroom. Only took us four kids to finally get smart enough to do that. And so, whenever he loses what he calls rough elephant, we give him soft elephant that hadn't been through so much trial, but he's able to do it. You know, it it was sort of, thinking through this passage, I thought about what would it be like for one of my children to lose their most prized possession at the hands of their siblings? And for Joseph, even at 17 plus years of age, you know, he's not a small child, but to be in a situation where the the greatest possession he owns is torn away from him in anger, he's cast down into a pit, probably injuring him to some extent to be thrown down into a pit that he could not climb out of himself and to be left there and to wait and to see what would happen. Perhaps hearing the conversations his brothers are having about whether or not they're going to kill him. What would it be like to listen to your siblings talk about whether they're going to end your life and how they're going to do it and how they just can't wait to do it? What a difficult place. Imagine what it was like as they pulled Joseph out of the pit as Reuben is not there and his only source of love, in a sense, from his brothers is is not there. And this band of traitors comes up. And despite his cries, and despite his pleas, and despite his tears, his brothers, all grown men at this point, don't budge an inch. And his life changes forever. Have you ever passed through one of those moments in your, in your life where once you went through that moment, life was never the same again? Now, thankfully, we've never faced anything quite exactly like what Joseph went through. But for each of us, we might have times that you say, you know what, if I'm really honest, that one time that I went through that one moment, my life was never the same after that. Never was. One of my favorite movies that I think I referenced in your uh, stewardship packets that you're going through in your life groups, The Time Machine, uh, about a man. In the 2002 adaptation of The Time Machine, this man wants to build a time machine to go back in time to change one moment that just ruined his life the loss of someone that he loved. You know, for us, we, we, you ever find yourself in a situation that if you just think hard enough, maybe there's some way I can wake up from the bad dream or maybe some way I can go back and change this or change that, and we find that you can't. And you pass through things that there's no going back. Imagine how different Joseph's perspective was. How many times on the way to Egypt he thought, if I just kept that dream to myself... If I had just not given that bad report about my brothers, if I had just not done this or done that, but in reality it wasn't his fault. And his life changed forever. Number four, sometimes pain changes the entire course of our lives. Sometimes pain changes the entire course of our lives. I wonder what it was like for Joseph for decades to be in Egypt with no photographs, nothing but memories of his family. I wonder how they started to fade. He'd already dealt with the loss of his mother. And now what his father's face looked like perhaps started to fade in his mind over time wonder if after a few years he wondered, did I ever really even live there? Did I ever have a coat of many colors? Did I ever this or that? Was there any other existence other than the pain that I've been in? That Joseph carried away and sold into slavery has an instance in his life. It changed his life forever. I mentioned before about the Ishmaelites and the Midianites and each of these relations of um, of Joseph distantly and reaching back to that pain. Sometimes pain changes the entire course of our lives. There may be people in here tonight that part of the reason you might have showed up tonight was to say, I just, I need something for how in the world to deal with the hurt and the difficulty and the pain, the trauma, the trouble, the difficult, whatever it is. You say, what am I supposed to do with that? Part of it becomes recognizing that it's there. It's there. Part of it becomes identifying with somebody who also walked through something deep and we'll get to in the coming weeks, see exactly how God worked in His life and what that means for us. But it always starts with acknowledging that the pain is there. For some of us, we feel like we can't feel pain or we can't acknowledge that pain or we don't want to admit that pain. Does that mean I don't love Jesus? Does that mean I don't trust Him enough? Does that mean I'm not a good dad or I'm not a good husband? I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good mother. Does that mean I'm not a good grandparent? Does it mean this or does it mean that? The reality is that all of us walk through pain. If you read the Psalms, you'll see that. There is some broken, angry, honest pain throughout the 150 chapters of the Psalms. And it's a lot less sanitized than most of the music that we sing in church. We're not comfortable singing some of the stuff that they sing in the Psalms, right? We'd be a little nervous about saying, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. It's hard to go to a bridge. I don't know how Parker would feel about that. That's a, tough, that's a tough transition. But all this honest anger and this hurt and this deep pain. And for each one of us, there's pain that changes the course of our lives at times. Number five, pain breeds deception. Pain breeds Deception. If you're still in chapter 37, I'm going to look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Imagine the capacity of these men, grown men, mind you, to come to their father, to take this probably expensive coat of many colors to cover it in blood and to tear it and to take it to their father and to begin the lie that would continue for years and years and years. These brothers probably thought all our problems will be solved if we can just get rid of Joseph. I'm here to tell you, I bet the coming years were a lot harder than the years that came before. When we seek to get rid of pain through evil means, we find no rest for our souls. So much so that when they end up in Egypt in a few chapters and they're with Joseph and they don't know who Joseph is and they start talking to each other and they say this is God's judgment on us because we know ever since that moment we knew we'd done something wrong. Imagine sitting there with their father. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son with the the older son, The, the second prodigal son that was outside the feast of the banquet? His father comes to him and what does that older son say? He says, you know what, dad? When that son of yours wasted your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He doesn't say, my brother. He says, your son. Do you see what the men say when they go back to Jacob as well? Tell me whether this is your son's. Even In faking his death, they're not willing to call him their brother. And then the pain continues, doesn't it? Because what does Jacob do? He goes into mourning. And he essentially says something to say, the loss that I have just gone through means more to me than those who are still alive with me. I might as well die because the son essentially that I love in between the lines, the son that I most cherish is gone. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. and His father wept for him. He refused to be comforted. And the cycle continues. And the cycle continues. And the cycle continues. Some of y'all in here were alive during the Elvis Heyday. I missed it. He he died a little bit before I was born, but nobody can say they've never heard an Elvis song, I don't think. And definitely nobody can say they've never heard a bad Elvis impression, right? It's always those. Probably the most um sort of unique Elvis hit was a song called In the Ghetto, if you've ever heard that song. And Elvis sings and it belts out something for my bad Elvis impression, something along the lines of On a cold and gray Chicago morn, another little baby child is born in the ghetto, in the ghetto. (laughs) I got to do it right if I'm going to do it now, you know? (laughs) Now, how do I transition from that? I lost you now, didn't I? But then he says this line and his mama cries. The song goes on, those of you who are familiar with it, tells the story of a little boy with a runny nose, grows up in difficult circumstances, and he learns how to get angry, and he learns how to fight, and he learns how to steal. Finally, that anger bubbles up inside of him so that he takes a gun, and he steals a car, and he makes his break, but he doesn't get far. And this little boy is lying face down in the road after a face-off with the police. And the song ends with that same rephrase, and then another little child is born in the ghetto and his mama cries. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. Apart from Jesus Christ at work in our hearts, our circumstances, and our lives, the cycle doesn't break. Now, there are those who without Christ, without a relationship with Christ, you know, things get turned around in their own life. I'm not saying only Christians are capable of overcoming pain, but I am saying apart from the grace of God at work, even in those who don't know Him, there is no breaking of any cycle of pain in any way. And Satan's call in our own life is if you'll just get back at this person, if you'll just do this, if you'll just turn your back on the pain, if you'll just turn away from it, if you'll just lie to yourself about it. Imagine how many times through the years these brothers lied to themselves so much that they believed it themselves. And the pain begat pain, begat pain, begat pain. You keep reading the parallel accounts and even with all that Joseph's going through, you can make the argument that the people in even more pain were those who were left behind that him in a prison in Egypt with God was greater than the rest of those brothers back in Canaan without him. And the pain kept going. But pain has a way of breeding deception. What it wants to do is say, well, if you can't overcome it, if you can't deal with it honestly, just lie about it. Maybe you can lie to somebody else. Maybe you can deceive yourself. Maybe you can live some sort of false reality and just chase that street as far as you can go and it it doesn't lead anywhere. And the last point, God is not absent in our pain. God is not absent in our pain. Aren't you glad? When we deal with pain, we can recognize that God is not absent. Dothan is mentioned twice in the Old Testament that I'm aware of. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago just briefly. But Dothan is mentioned twice. One time it's here. In the circumstance where Joseph and all of his brothers selling him into slavery, he's crying out to them, he's calling out to them, and they cold-heartedly allow him to be sold into slavery. And imagine the pain that day in Dothan. But Dothan's mentioned once more. Second Kings chapter 6, Elisha wakes up, being summoned by his servant, says, Elisha, you're not going to like this. We're surrounded on all sides, and our end is near, and there's no hope left for us. And Elisha prays, and he said, God, will you allow my servant to see what I see? Will you open his eyes? And the Bible says that the servant's eyes were open, and as he looked out on the hillsides around Dothan, what did he see? Chariots of fire. And Elisha says these great words, those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. In the Dothans of your life and the Dothans of my life, what we fail to see is the presence and the might and the power and the armies of God with us in our deepest hurt and pain, fighting battles that we can't see, advocating for us, being with us, and we don't know We won't know until eternity, and maybe then we won't even have a full picture of all the ways that God's grace and His work unseen in our life kept us from pain that we never understood was even there. And so in the Dothans of our life, we we remember that in our toughest possible moments, in the pain that changes the course of our life forever, in the deepest possible hurt, God is not absent. He's not. One of my favorite hymns through the years, it's come to be a song called, He Giveth More Grace. I don't know if you've ever heard this hymn before, but it's become one of the most comforting words ever penned to me. It says this, He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy. To multipli- multiplied trials, He multiplies Peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits, His grace has no measure, His power no boundary known unto men, for out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Will you pray with me? Father, all around this room, just in the extra moments that we have even now, Father, just in the silence in the stillness, Father, there's probably people in this room who maybe avoid the stillness and the quiet just because of what they deal with in their own minds and hearts, the pain even as we've talked through it tonight that we're reminded of the tough places. Father, for some of us in here, there may be scars that have healed a great deal, that time has mended those wounds, that your work in our lives has mended those wounds. Lord, for others, there may be fresh wounds in here. Lord, as the thoughts, the relationships, the circumstances, the difficulty comes into our minds and hearts even now, Lord, can we remember not only Joseph's cries in Dothan for help that seemed to go unanswered, but can we remember the flaming chariots of fire, the armies of heaven fighting on behalf of those who were yours? And Lord, for the difficulty in Dothan that we have, would you remind us of the hope? And so, Father, for us to honor you as the attack of the enemy would call us to transfer pain, call us to uh, deceive ourselves or others in the midst of pain, call us to chase down roads that won't lead anywhere. Lord, would you help us instead to find you, as Psalm 46 says, as a refuge and a strength and a very present help. So, Lord, for each person in here today, whether immune to pain or whether walking through the deepest water, Father, would you work as only you can, and even in our pain, even in our difficulty. Lord, would you encourage and bless and move in our hearts. We thank you, Father. We look to you. We ask that the hope of the passage we read earlier, that even what others have intended for evil, even in our own sin, and our own difficulty, even the mistakes we've made and those that others have made that have impacted us, Lord, that all of those things intended by evil, uh, for, for evil by the enemy, by others, that, Lord, you, above all of them, are bringing about the good that we need. So, Father, can we trust you? Will you help us? And so, Lord, we look to you tonight. We thank you for the hope that's in you. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, your Son, we ask this, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.